Welcome to Didache, where we are studying to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of truth so we can worship God in spirit and truth, deepening our knowledge of God, thereby enabling us to deepen our love for God. Here is your host, Justin Peters. Welcome to the program, ladies and gentlemen. I hope that this finds you and yours doing well. And I want to thank you for joining me for today's installment of the program. We are continuing our series on the new book by William Paul Young entitled Lies That We Believe About God. Lies That We Believe About God. He, of course, is the author of The Shack, uh, now the movie by the same title, The Shack. And this is his newest book, Lies That We Believe About God, and he has detailed what he claims are 28 different lies that we believe about God. And what is uh, so disturbing to me is that uh, most of these lies that he says we believe about God are actually, in fact, true. And uh, so this is not to, again, not to belabor the point of the shack or, or, you know, beat a dead horse with the shack. Moving on from the shack just so happens that William Paul Young is the author of, of this book. But I think this will be a good exercise for us in discernment to look at some of these lies that he claims we believe about God and see why, unfortunately, in fact, he is the one who is lying. If you heard yesterday's program you know that uh, I, I said that when you read this book, as I have now, uh, he does not engage any of the text that would refute what he is saying. Uh, and, and there's hundreds of them, uh, but he does not engage them. He just ignores them. And really, all of his argumentation, all of his reasoning is not grounded in Scripture. When he does cite Scripture, he does so out of context. Uh, he will only quote part of a verse, or he doesn't give you the context of that verse. And so uh, if you take, I mean, you can make the Bible say just about whatever you want it to say. If you take uh, verses out of their proper context, you can make an argument for any number of different things. So that's why it's so important to leave them in their context, but he really... Uh, Practically is batting a thousand, unfortunately, uh, but in the wrong direction as far as that goes. He he takes all of his scriptures uh, out of context and assigns to them a meaning that they do not have. So yesterday we talked about the lie that he says um, that uh, uh, the God is good, I am not. Of course, the first half of that is true. God is good, obviously, but the second half, I am not. Talked about that. And uh, so I want to get now to some more lies today. His next lie, his third lie in the book, is God is in control. God is in control. Uh, that is, according to William Paul Young, a lie. Now, undoubtedly the reason he says that this is a lie is because there is so much evil in the world. Uh, there's there's so much, uh, there's so many bad things that happen uh, to people, natural disasters, murders, you know, uh, people get sick, they die of cancer, all these things. And so obviously there's a lot of bad things in the world. And so according to his preconceived view of God, he reasons that God cannot possibly be in control. 
And, of course, he begins with a, a faulty premise. Uh, the, the premise that most people have, though, how could a, a good God, why does a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? And, of course, that is the wrong question because it uh, assumes that there are good people, and we saw yesterday that there are not any good people, per Romans chapter 3, 10 through 11, per um, Isaiah 64, per Jeremiah chapter 17. There are no good people. Only one is good, and that is God. So he begins with the wrong question. The, 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 his premise, his starting point is wrong. And, of course, if your starting point is wrong, then every conclusion to which you come will also be wrong. But he says because people are inherently good and bad things happen to people, and yet he does believe that God is good too, then therefore God is not in control. God cannot be in control. He says it is a lie that God is in control. Now, interestingly, when you read this chapter, chapter number three in his book, uh, he offers no scripture. He does not give any scriptural support. It's just his own reasoning, uh, his own feelings and emotions. But I'm not going to do that, and we should not do that, so let's go to the scriptures. Uh, Psalm chapter 115, verse 3, for example, we could talk about Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. God can do whatever he wants to do. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm uh, 135 verse 6, and I'm saying this off uh, off my memory, Psalm 135 verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all of the deeps. So God does indeed do whatever he wants to do, and God is all powerful. We know that from uh, Colossians, he upholds all things by the word of his power. As R.C. Sproul has said before, there is not a single renegade molecule anywhere in the universe. God can do whatever he pleases. Uh, so God certainly is in control. God is sovereign, and he is in control. If God were not in control, dear friends, in fact, I'll put, I'll put it this way. Given that the Bible teaches that God upholds all things by the word of his power, if God was not in control, then the universe would absolutely fall apart. Any God who is not sovereign is not the God of the Bible. So he doesn't engage any of these texts. He doesn't talk about the eternal decree of God. He just assumes that because there's evil in the world, then God must not be in control. All right, uh, the next lie, actually uh, the very next lie in the book, uh, lie number four, chapter four, the next lie is God does not submit. God does not submit. He says that is a lie. In fact, in the book, uh, in, in this uh, lies that we believe, and he even references the shack, uh, in, the, in the shack, in the book and the movie, uh, God talks about submitting. Uh, each, each member of the Trinity submits to the other, which is not biblical, uh, not a right understanding of the Trinity, but then uh, Papa says, or I think it maybe it's Sarayu, the Holy Spirit says, we even submit to you. I, I just about had to pick my jaw up off the floor when I heard that. Uh, dear friends, God, <laughs> hmm, 
patience, Iago. God does not submit to any of us. The very notion that God would submit to us is anathema. And it is, uh, you may have heard me say before, it is really ironic that these people who claim to have a high view of the Holy Spirit um, and really emphasize his work actually have a very low view of the Holy Spirit because there is no way that somebody could be indwelt by the true Holy Spirit of God, may be indwelt by some other spirit, but not by the Holy Spirit, and teach something that is that blasphemous. Friends, God does not submit himself to us. Christ gave himself for us, gave himself as an offering for sin to satisfy the wrath of God, but that does not mean he submitted to us. He condescended to us. He condescended to us in the incarnation when Jesus uh, left his place with the Father and the Holy Spirit uh, before the incarnation, and he came down to this earth and, and took on a robe of human flesh. That is, you'll sometimes hear theologians or preachers refer to that as the condescension of Christ. He condescended to us in that he became one of us. He became a man. He, he took on uh, a human nature. But that is not submission. Okay, God, God does not submit himself to us. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Wonderful Counselor. He is the Almighty God. And God uh, submits himself to no one. To no one. All right, the next lie. This is uh, skipping. We're not going to do all 28 lies, so I'm going to hit the most important ones or most egregious ones, uh, depending upon uh, your point of view. So let's go to this. Lie number seven. Lie number seven. God is more he than she. This is a lie, according to William Paul Young. God is more he than she. He says it is a lie to think of God as more masculine than feminine. Okay. Well, let's break this down a little bit. If if somebody were to say to you, God is not male or female. Uh, God is just as much female as he is male. How would you respond? Okay. This is why I'm saying that we're doing this. I told you that we're doing this series. This is a little exercise in discernment, kind of a iron sharpener here. So if you ever hear somebody say that, oh, well, God's not a man. God's not a male. He's just as much female as he is male. How would you respond? Well, all right, like like many lies, there is an element of truth to this, and there is an element of truth to this one in a sense. In the sense is this, is that God is spirit, right? John chapter 4, God is spirit. The Bible says that God is light, God is love, God is a spirit. Uh, John chapter 4, and he must be worshipped in spirit and truth. So as a spirit, God does not possess a physical body. Uh, the Holy Spirit, as a spirit, does not possess a physical body. Uh, there is anthropomorphic language in the Bible that refers to God's eyes, his hands, his outstretched arm, his nostrils, God's feet. Um, but this is anthropomorphic language just to uh, help. This is the Bible using uh, human terminology to describe the Bible who is, uh, or excuse me, the God of the Bible who is not human uh, to help us kind of relate in a, in a sense, if you will. 
anthropomorphic. what if you ever hear the term anthropomorphic. Um, that's that's what it means. Uh, the Bible speaks of God's uh, the Father's lips. Uh, this is anthropomorphic language. So uh, God has, even though He is not, He does not have a body, and He has spirit, and and spirit uh, is is neither male nor female in a sense. Here's here's the problem. Here's why what William Paul Young says is not true. God has chosen to reveal himself as a male. Okay, God has chosen to reveal himself to us as a male. There are at least 170 references in the Bible to God as Father. To God as Father. Um, God is never identified as God the Mother. So you have 170 references to God the Father, Zero references to God the Mother, just not there. All of the pronouns that are used to refer to God in both the Old and the New Testament, without exception, all of the pronouns to, used to refer to, both, to God, both in the Old and New Testament, are masculine. They are masculine pronouns. Even though God is a spirit and does not possess a body, all of the pronouns used to refer to him are just that, him, he, masculine. Jesus is referred to as the Son of God, never as the daughter of God. That is, that's not arbitrary. It's intentional. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus came as a man. He did not come as a woman. Okay, he could have just as easily, but he didn't. He came as a man. Even the pronouns in the New Testament that are used to in reference to the Holy Spirit uh, are likewise masculine. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit and he says when he comes uh, he will guide you. The, the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all refer to themselves as masculine. They reveal themselves in the in the male gender. Um, now there is some reference in the Bible to God having feminine qualities. For example, Psalm chapter 91 says he will cover you with his feathers. This is something that a mother bird typically does. Not not often uh, male birds do that. There, there's a few exceptions, but not a lot. Uh, so, But by and large, that's typically a, a rather um, motherly reference. Jesus, when he was weeping over Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her young. So there are a few uh, feminine references, but in 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 quality, in 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 some of the qualities, but never by character, by nature, never the the Father, Son, nor the Holy Spirit ever reveal themselves as anything but. Masculine. Masculine pronouns are always, always used. All right, the next lie, chapter 8. Uh, his next lie is God wants to be a priority. That's a lie, says William Paul Young. He wants to be a priority. On page 77 in his book, he says, What does it even mean to put God first? What does it even mean to do that? That's a rather stunning statement. Uh, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Uh, we got. We are to to 
Uh, he is to be preeminent in our lives. That is that is what lordship salvation is all about. Now, I will say this. None of us can do this perfectly. None of us can. Uh, I just got off the phone with someone who called me, and, and I should have known something was up. He was buttering me up, telling me how much he's learned. He watches me all the time. I'm the only preacher he listens to. That was a big red flag, by the way, when he told me that. I, you're the only preacher I listen to. Well, I said, I shouldn't be the only preacher you're listening to. But he was buttering me up, and, and uh, uh, long story short, he ended up he wanted me to help him with his rent money. He doesn't go to church anywhere. Uh, he's a lone ranger. He was bragging about just talking all about how much he loves God, how much he loves Christ. Uh, I love Christ with all my heart. And he said, everything I do pleases him. Everything I do pleases God. And I said, Richard, that was his name. You don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, I said, Richard, no, you don't. Uh, everything you do does not please God. You do not love the Lord your God with all of your heart uh, because nobody does. And... Um, the more I talk with this guy, he was, he was very arrogant. And, dear friends, anybody who would say, you know, that song, uh, I Surrender All. I don't think we even sing that at our church at Kootenai. I, don't, I can't remember a single time we've ever sung that song at our church. Uh, I have sung it many, many times before in, in other churches growing up a lot. I Surrender All. You know what? There is not a single one of us that can sing that song with a crystal clear conscience. Or at least we shouldn't be able to. As I can tell you right now, I haven't surrendered all. If I had surrendered all to Christ, then I would be sinless. And I'm not. I'm not. Now, I don't... I, I do my best to do Romans 8.13 and put to death the deeds of the body and uh, 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 put to death the old man and I, I seek to glorify Christ in, in my life. But I'm not perfect. And anybody who tells you that they are, that he or she is does not know what he or she is talking about or is a very prideful person. None of us can say, I surrender all with a crystal clear conscience. We can't do it because none of us has. And, and we won't until we're glorified. I mean, read Romans chapter 7 for crying out loud. I mean, you read Paul and his struggle with sins. He He had this sin and he hated it, but he... He kept doing it, and uh, it, it grieved him. Uh, that's that's not that's the mark of a mature Christian. One of the paradoxes of our Christian life is that the the longer we walk with the Lord, the more we understand His Word, the more we see Him um, see Him working out His sovereign decree in our lives. Uh, and the longer we walk in with him, the, the closer we grow to Christ, the more our sin will grieve us, and the more we will see things in our lives that we did not see before. Uh, I see things in my life now that never crossed my mind before I was truly converted. Uh, I see things in my life now that uh, I didn't see the first year of being a Christian. Uh, that's just how it works. Uh, the closer we grow to Christ, the more sensitive we become to sin, and uh, the more even we see it in ourselves. So it's a bit of a paradox. We grow in Christ, we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, but as we do, the more aware we are of our own human frailty and and just how dependent we are upon God. So uh, 
Anyway, uh, salvation is not perfection, but it is direction, which direction is your life going. So uh, I chased a little bit of a rabbit there. I didn't mean to get off uh, so much on that. Let's run through another lie or two real quickly. His next lie, God is a magician. And actually, this was a valid point. That, 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 he's actually right about that. God's not a magician. Uh, but the point that he used to illustrate this truth was terrible. It was absolutely, absolutely terrible. Um, so a lot of people think that they have this view as God being a, a, a magician, just going to you know, make everything go away and all the consequences of our sins. You know, when we are forgiven of sins... Uh, God's wrath is removed. We will not, we are no longer as Christians. You and I are not subject to the eschatological wrath of God. In other words, we do not have to fear hell. That is something that we, we should not, we should not fear. And yet we are to fear God. We are to reverence him. We are to be in awe of him. But just because we've been forgiven of sins doesn't necessarily mean all the consequences of those sins evaporate, right? We can be forgiven, um, and and not uh, have those sins held against us and not have those sins uh, hinder us in our growth in the Lord and our uh, progressive sanctification. But it doesn't necessarily mean the consequences of those sins go away. Uh, I have no doubt. Now, most of the people who get saved in prison, these, these jail conversions, prison conversions, you, know, you hear all the, about all these prisoners finding Jesus and you know, while they're incarcerated, most of that's not real, because I've been in a few prisons, and I can tell you most of what's called Christianity in the prisons is word of faith stuff, which is not Christianity, but it does happen. There there are some uh, men and women who get genuinely converted while they're in prison, and guess what? They're forgiven of their sins. Their, 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 their slate has been wiped clean, and they do not have to fear the wrath of God any longer, but they're still in prison. They still have consequences of those sins, so the sins don't. I mean, the consequences don't evaporate, but um, but uh, we don't have to fear the wrath of God once we are believers, once we are in Christ. All right. Um, looking at the time here, I'm going to stop with that. Uh, stop at this point, and we will pick this up, Lord willing, tomorrow. Tomorrow, some of the lies that we will look about, look at. Uh, God blesses my politics. God created my religion. Oh, and get this. Another lie that we'll talk about tomorrow in his book is you need to get saved. Ho, ho, you need to get saved. That's, according to William Paul Young, that's a lie. Wow. Uh, We'll talk about that, Lord willing, tomorrow. Thank you very much for joining me, dear ones. I love to hear from you. Email me, justin at justinpeters.org. And until our next time together, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to Didache. We hope that you were encouraged and edified by what you just heard. If you have a question or comment for Justin, or interested in more teaching resources, or would like to have him come and preach at your church or conference, you may contact him at justinpeters.org.